0: You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would answer this prayer we just sang. That you'd fix our eyes and our attention on the beauty and glory of Jesus. That you'd lift our eyes from our week, whether it's been full of excitement and joy or it's been full of frustration and difficulty. that, That we together would see and savor and delight in the wonder and beauty of Jesus who loves us and saves us and changes us. Could you help us to continue our worship as we spend some time in your word, that your people would be challenged where we need to be challenged, that we'd be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, that we'd be equipped where we need to be equipped, but that we would share in one vision, one hope, of you, Lord Jesus, as our King. And that we are, by your grace, citizens now of your kingdom. Cause our hearts to swell with gratitude as we continue in worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. Uh, We're continuing in Luke's Gospel this morning, so grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. Excuse me, if you need a Bible, Some folks are coming around from our strike team and can get you one. If you do not own a Bible, please take this one home with you so you have one of your own. As you're finding your way to Luke 22, uh, let me just give us a little backdrop. Luke 22 begins the the final week, if you will, of Jesus' earthly ministry as he moves toward the cross. That's kind of where Luke 22 starts. Excuse me. Many times... Through the course of the Gospels and in our study of Luke, Jesus has already told His disciples, suffering's coming. Death is coming. Uh, Hardship and beatings and and, and persecution and, and me, ultimately, Jesus saying, going to my death. All of this is coming down the timeline. And often, as we read all through the Gospel accounts, not just Luke, but the others as well, Jesus' disciples seem to only partially get what he's saying. They don't seem to understand. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God operates, which is often very different from how the kingdom of men operates. And his disciples who were with him day after day after day still don't quite understand what it is Jesus means. And here in this section of Luke, from verses 21 through verse 38, Jesus has kind of his final words with his disciples before they go to the Mountain of Olives and Jesus is betrayed and arrested and crucified. And so right at the end of their last supper, Jesus says a handful of things. He, he reveals to his disciples that it's going to be one of them who will betray him, but he doesn't say out loud who it is. He, he teaches them about what greatness in the kingdom of God is like and just in general, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He gives his disciples some insight into the world of, like, the spiritual realm and the work of Satan, and he tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me? And then he sets the stage before they leave for the garden to pray about how everything is going to change now in their ministry, once he fulfills the scriptures by going to the cross. These words from Jesus from the end of their dinner until they leave for the garden Kind of for his disciples, serve as a little bit of a, I'm calling it a, a kingdom reset. Jesus is using his last hours with his disciples to reveal one last time the transforming power of the kingdom of God and what, it, what it's doing as it invades earth. Last week we read down through verse 23 at the end of the supper, but I really didn't address verses 21 through 23. Only one person brought that up to me, like, hey, you didn't really talk about that. So either no one really cared, or you just didn't want to be mean, I don't know. But we're going to cover that a little bit today, so we're going to kind of overlap our text last week and and start reading uh, in verse 21. I'm going to tackle verses 21 through 30 today, and then Pastor Devin is going to take, I think it's what I wrote down, 31 through 38, I think, maybe just 34 next Sunday. So there you go. He's not going to do 30. I guess I'll do that the week after. That's fine. I, it's, we wrote it down. I just didn't look at it again. Um, so let's, let's read together. We're going to start in verse 21, which might be familiar because we read part of it last week. We're going to read through uh, Luke 22, verses 21 through verse 30. All right? So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 22, starting in verse 21. But behold, this is Jesus speaking, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is God's holy word that cannot and will not fail. Amen? Now... I said that Jesus is giving his disciples one kind of final kingdom reset. Helping them understand how the kingdom of God operates and how it's different from the kingdom that they live in. The the life that they're familiar with. And I think Jesus does this because his disciples need it. He doesn't waste any of his time with them. He's telling them these things because they need it. And we see all through the gospels that People, not just his disciples, they're easy targets, not just his disciples, people all the time consistently fail to grasp exactly what it is Jesus is trying to tell them about himself, about his ministry, about his purposes. Now, not everyone misses it, but many people do. And much of the disconnect is that everyone who's hearing Jesus and seeing Him do things has their own expectations about what the Messiah is supposed to be like, what their Savior that they're waiting for is supposed to be like, or sound like, or say, or do. And they have these ideas, these expectations as to what the Messiah is supposed to be, and then they impose those expectations on Jesus. And then when He doesn't say the thing that they expect or do the thing that they expect... They're confused or disappointed or in some cases straight up angry. They have faulty expectations. They're stuck in their own ways of thinking, and their own ways of living, and then when Jesus doesn't match those things, they're like, well, who's this guy? What's this about? And often, and here's the tie-in for us, I think we're pretty much the same. We need a kingdom reset right along with Jesus' disciples here because we too have faulty expectations. We too get stuck in our own ways of thinking and doing all the time. And we bring those expectations to bear on one another, on our life circumstances, and on Jesus. And then when those expectations aren't met, now we're miffed, right? Usually it's, it's small things in our lives where our expectations are a little bit off. What we envisioned it should be or could be ends up not being what it is, and then we get frustrated. Here's a really basic illustration. Has anyone ever been to the Louvre, the museum in Paris? A few, maybe, a couple of hands. Right? My wife Amy has been to uh, the Louvre um, when she was younger, got to go on like a big choir trip. And, and she remembers walking through that museum. I mean, the Louvre holds some of the most remarkable artwork and sculpture in, in the world and there's a room in the Louvre called the Mona Lisa Room. Can you guess what's in the Mona Lisa Room? Right? The Mona Lisa. It's the gallery room that holds at one end, on a wall, all by itself, often, Leonardo da Vinci's famous portrait called the Mona Lisa. I think I have a photo of it. There it is, way across the room. Right In this massive gallery room, on this large wall hangs a fairly average-sized portrait. It's less than two feet wide and less than three feet tall, so less than six square feet even within its frame. And you can see the crowds typically line up during busy times to get a glimpse of the, the Mona Lisa. What's fascinating, and this is what Amy told me as we talked about that this week, what's fascinating is all the other artwork in the room paintings by masters that are like extras on the walls in the Mona Lisa room in fact on the back wall there's a massive painting that depicts the the Jesus wedding at the wedding feast at at Cana it's literally called the wedding feast at Cana and this massive painting covers 724 square feet of oil painted mastery person for scale right right So you just see the the difference between. So, So not just my wife, but others who have visited the Louvre and have entered the Mona Lisa room, and maybe this is you. You walk in and you're like, okay, that's a neat painting, I guess. It's just really famous. But like, look at this one, you know? I don't even know how you paint something that large. Right? Even though the Mona Lisa is the famous painting in the room by Leonardo da Vinci, people often comment that they're a little underwhelmed. They thought it would be more than it actually is, especially in the context of what else is going on just in this one room, right? They're disappointed because their expectations did not match reality, what their eyes actually saw. Now, this is a pretty minor example of faulty expectations, but there are lots of expectations in our lives that we have all the time, all the time big and small. And those expectations cause us to act in a particular way. I think we're going to see a lot of it as we enter more deeply into this political season, although it kind of feels like politics here in America just are nonstop now. It used to go in like waves, and now it's just fire hose all day. But I think we'll see it a lot. A certain bumper sticker, a certain pin on a jacket, or a profile picture on your favorite social media Uh, site of choice is going to trigger in you a certain response right Oh, oh oh you support that candidate or that position that must mean you believe blank right I have an expectation based on what I see and so here's the outcome of that whether or not it's actually true and so based on our expectations we react and we respond in particular ways and if we're not careful, those become the ways that we get stuck in. Those are the ruts, the fami- ruts, excuse me, the familiar places that we go because, well, this is just kind of how I think it is. And, and those ways will then begin to reinforce those faulty expectations. And then we begin, begin living in this self-affirming echo chamber of our own making, where everything we're taking in just confirms exactly what we thought was going to happen whether or not we're seeing it rightly, and then we just happily live in our own little kingdoms where we know how everything is going to go. We can read every person in five seconds. We know how every situation is going to play itself out, and that serves as the point of connection for us. We, too, have faulty expectations. We, too, are stuck in our own ways of thinking, but Jesus is showing us a better way of his kingdom. That's what I want to draw a little bit out of this, this narrative passage where Jesus is talking with His disciples about things that are to come. Let me say it this way again. We often have faulty expectations and are stuck in our own ways, but Jesus shows us the better way of His kingdom. And in this dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples, I think he kind of peels back the curtain a little bit to expose in a real gentle way, honestly, this faulty way of thinking and living and gives his disciples and I think gives us some insight into the better way of how the kingdom of God, that Jesus is inaugurating, how that kingdom is advancing on the earth, how that kingdom operates and how we can live according to that kingdom rather than our own. And I think we see a couple things in our passage today about the kingdom that's different. Here's three things we see about How the kingdom of God is different than our own kingdoms. Kingdom relationships, kingdom renown, and kingdom rule. Kingdom relationships, kingdom renown, and kingdom rule. Let's look at the first one. Chapter of Luke begins with Jesus and his disciples coming to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover together. We've talked about that. This tight-knit band of brothers These men were like family to each other. And one of them, Judas Iscariot, had already made plans to betray Jesus. So when they sit down for this meal, and Jesus says, take and eat, and he's serving them all, when he holds up the cup after supper and he says, this cup poured out for you to secure a new and a better covenant, Judas is still sitting around that table. And we pick it up in verse 21, and Jesus says this, after he served them the bread and the the cup, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus is letting them know there's a betrayer right here at our table, even if he doesn't tell them who it is. He's already told them he will be betrayed, that he'll be beaten, that he'll be crucified, and then he's letting them know one of them is going to be his betrayer. Look at verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So Jesus is leaning on and highlighting the sovereign plan of the Father to crush the Son. That is God's will is being carried out in real time. And verse 22 continues, Woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Judas was ordained to be the one to betray Jesus, and it was Judas's own willful choice. To betray Jesus and it would be ultimately to his own shame to participate in sinning against Jesus in this way verse 23 and they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this from our perspective when we read this we're like it's Judas (laughs) can't you see that but put yourselves in their shoes for a second they don't know that yet they're kind of dumbstruck they begin to question one another. Can you picture them just for a second kind of leaning over to each other, one another? Like, is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Do you think it's John? No, it can't be John. John's, John he loves John. That would even be the worst if it was John, right? Like, do, do you see that? I, I think it tells us a little something. The way Jesus interacts with these 12 tells us something about how Jesus operates when it comes to relationships in the kingdom. Jesus served Judas a meal. Jesus washed Judas' feet along with all the others. Jesus empowered Judas along with the 12 and 60 others to go out and do ministry earlier in the Gospels. And they take authority over demons in Jesus' name and heal the sick in Jesus' name. In John 15, Jesus says to these same men, including Judas, "'No longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends.'" And we talked about this before when we talked about Judas, that Jesus was Judas' friend but was not Judas' Lord. Luke continues, chapter 22, verse 24. And then a dispute also arose among them, and they began arguing amongst themselves about which one of them was going to be seen as the greatest. Now, apparently, they got thinking and got talking to one another about what it was going to be like when Jesus finally takes his rightful place as king. When he wins, we win. So when that happens, I wonder which one of us is going to get the promotion. Which one of us will be seen as the greatest amongst the disciples? Right? And look what Jesus says, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus says they hold their authority or their title as king or lord or ruler out over the people they're supposed to lead. And those leaders are the benefactors. Meaning, their idea of leadership is that I, as the leader, benefit from the labor and honor of those who, well, are underneath me. I'm the benefactor. The people live to serve the king. But Jesus says in verse 26, But not so with you. Jesus is saying something about honor and renown, which we'll get to here in a second, but he's saying something about relationships in the kingdom here. Authority and power and how you relate to one another in the kingdom of God is not marked by title or position before one another. Instead, it is marked by calling and posture before God. Let me say that again. It is not marked by title or position before one another, but it is instead marked by calling and a posture before God. All of Jesus' actions toward his disciples and what he's calling them to In his example, in his teaching of them, is that relationships in the kingdom of God are to be motivated by and seasoned with grace. Do you know what I mean when I say seasoned? They have flavor. (laughs) They have a particular flavor. I know we're mostly Scandinavians and Germans from the Midwest, but we don't have to be afraid of flavor, okay? Or seasoning. You can can be spicy, it's okay. And I don't mean ketchup. Relationships in the kingdom of God should look and smell and taste like grace. God's grace should be the prominent flavor of our lives and our relationships. Kingdom relationships are seasoned with grace. Listen to how Jesus prays for his disciples in John's Gospel, John 17. We're going to look at a couple of sections of John 17. I'm just going to, these are the Jesus' words as he prays for his disciples. But now he says, I'm coming to you, he's talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. He's praying for his disciples' joy, for their protection from evil, for them to be sanctified, that is made holy. And they're made holy through the word of God as he sends them out to carry out the work of his kingdom. Keep reading verse 20 of John 17. It'll be on the screens. Verse 20, Jesus doesn't also pray. For, doesn't pray just for his disciples, but also for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying for their unity in the faith, that they would be one. He continues, verse 24. Father, Jesus says, grace that Jesus would love us like this? That the love that the Father has for the perfect Son is the same kind of love that the Son has for sinners? Oh, what grace. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but it's not because we are particularly lovable. It's not because we are good enough or smart enough that Jesus loves us. Rather, as Romans reminds us, Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. God's grace is on display in the person and the work of Jesus, and so because it's all grace that brings us into relationship with him, our relationship now with one another is to be marked by, and our words are to be seasoned with grace. Kingdom relationships are seasoned with grace. The question is, are our relationships amongst one another actually marked by grace? Are our words, the motivations behind our words, are they seasoned with grace? Kingdom relationships are seasoned with grace. Let's continue back to Luke 22, verse 24. This argument bubbles up amongst them. They're debating amongst themselves. And it's not totally unexpected. Right? The world in which they live is not that all dissimilar from the world in which we live in. The world operates a certain way, right? The world in which we live operates in a certain way. You have to climb the corporate ladder. And in some cases, in order for you to advance, you might need to step on some other people to get there. It's the world in which we live, right? And Jesus says, in order to be great in That world, you operate in a certain way. But in order to be great in the kingdom, it's different. It does not operate the same way, which is our second point this morning. Jesus resets their expectations about greatness and helps them see kingdom renown. I didn't just choose the word renown because it starts with an R and goes with the other two, although that is helpful. Renown is the same word for fame or glory. How will we be known? What will give us honor and greatness? And so the disciples are arguing amongst themselves which one of them will be the greatest. Now, we don't know how they see themselves or we don't know exactly what measuring stick they're using to decide their greatness, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and, and just assume that they're probably not comparing who's more humble. They're probably not comparing how many people have you encouraged this week? Or how many feet have you washed? I mean, they might be, but I doubt it. I doubt it just from what we know of the disciples. And I'm not shooting them. I'm putting us in that same camp with them. In fact, all the way back in Luke 10, when we talk about Jesus sending out the 72, not just the 12, but 60 others to do ministry, heal the sick, heal the blind, proclaim the kingdom. uh, They come back rejoicing. Because as they encountered spiritual warfare, as they encountered uh, demonic forces, they took authority over those demons in the name of Jesus, and those demons submitted to them, and they come back giddy. Luke chapter 10, behold, Jesus says to them, and they come back excited, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, except Jesus says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, in these things, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is essentially saying this, there is no flexing in the kingdom. There isn't. You cast out ten demons and John only did eight. That must prove nothing. It proves nothing. At least not in terms of greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus continues in our passage, Luke 22. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Take the low spot, Jesus says. Kingdom renown, greatness in the kingdom. Kingdom renown is marked by service, not status. And this seems counterintuitive, and and it kind of is. It's, it's, It's a radically counter cultural idea and not at all what the disciples were thinking or how we tend to think it's not how our world tends to operate kids in the room or if you can remember back to when you were a kid how did you feel on the day they hand out how do you feel on the day they give you report cards i don't even know if they do that anymore i should ask i should have asked you this ahead of time you kids and preteens in the room i'm looking at you Right. Do, you, do, you remember the, do you remember report card day? I remember report card day. Growing up, it was like in a little manila envelope, and it was like, uh, like three sheets of paper, like the one they wrote on, and then like the pink one and the yellow one, the transfer paper, and they took the one, and you had to have your mom sign it to say like, I saw that you got a D in math, right? Like they needed to, was that just me? They needed to do that. But, but right away, you'd, you'd like open them up right away, and you'd like compare with your neighbor like, oh yeah, hey, we did good, and we did really good in English. And I did a little better in, in that, but we both stink at chemistry. And, right, like this is that's what you do. You immediately start measuring up, figuring out where you rank with one another. They were giving us a grade based on a set of expectations and how well we met those expectations. Did we complete the assignment? Did we not do our homework? Did we do our homework? Did we talk a lot in class? Whatever. Maybe it's not report cards, but those of you who are in the workforce, annual reviews with your supervisor or employer, right? you sit down and you're like, here's all the things you did well this year, here's all the stuff you totally bombed, you either get fired or you get a raise or something in between, right? Did I meet the understood expectations or not? Now, hear me, there is work to be done in the kingdom of God. So please hear me on that. But the path to honor The path to greatness in God's economy isn't climbing as high or as fast as you can. Greatness in the kingdom is marked by service. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. He kind of asks a rhetorical question. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Who's seen as more important, the one eating the meal or the one serving the meal? Jesus says, well, of course, the one eating the meal. But Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. I'm greater than you, Jesus is saying, and yet I've come to serve you. And so Jesus flips this all on its head, all these faulty expectations of his disciples about what it means to be great. And he says, you're pursuing the wrong aims you want to be great fine aim to be great but aim to be great in the kingdom of god because this kingdom that you're living in is fading away this kingdom that you're living in is going to burn up but that kingdom lasts forever so if you're going to pursue greatness if you're going to pursue renown in the kingdom of god kingdom renown is marked by service i asked this question when we were in advent and looked at christ who is the ultimate servant who serves us I ask this question, I'm going to ask it again. Who is it that God has called me to serve? Where has God placed me that I might pursue kingdom greatness, kingdom renown in that place? What does servanthood look like in those places? Let's do one more. Look at verse 28. You, talking to His disciples, you are those... Who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus here is giving his disciples a glimpse of kingdom rule. It's related a little to greatness and renown. But did you pick up on what Jesus said there? He repeated a word. It was used twice in that verse. You who have stayed with me in my trials, he says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. The a kingdom applies to what Jesus has assigned to us and what the Father has assigned to Christ. The road to this point in the life of Jesus and these disciples who've been following around for approximately three years, it's been full of miracles it's been full of wonder, and it's been full of difficulty. (laughs) It's all been mixed together. The disciples were often away from their families. They were under pressure from the crowds, who were often impatient. They were under attack from the Pharisees, who were like, wait, but if you're with him, and we don't like him, then we don't like you. They had to bear all of that, and Jesus affirms their steadfastness. He says, you have stayed with me to this point. In my trials, in difficulties, is you guys who have been with me, stop arguing about who is going to be greater. (laughs) Because I'm laying hold of the kingdom that the Father has assigned to me, and you whom I've already chosen, you will be with me. But not because you're the most spiritual, not because you're the smartest, but according to the perfect foreknowledge and merciful choosing of God, I will take my throne and you will join me in the kingdom. And here's how Jesus describes it. Look at verse 30. He says, eating and drinking at the Lord's table. This has echoes of what we talked about last week. And as we come to the Lord's uh, supper together, we kind of get a tangible taste of that. Looking ahead to that great wedding feast of the Lamb, a glimpse into what's to come. In the throne room of God, there will be feasting at His table and His people are invited to a feast. And Jesus says, you're going to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That phrase, judging, speaks of rule. The king and the king's appointed rule over the kingdom they make judgments over the nations so jesus is reminding them that he is king over all things and as king he appoints others with authority in his kingdom which is different than how the uh, uh, the world deals with authority and rule leadership authority rule according to the world is either earned by merit or taken by force And we can argue that merit might be a more honorable of the two. I'm not dissing it flat out for what it is. I'm just saying it's different than the kingdom. Leadership and authority and rule in the world in which we live is either earned or taken. But rule in the kingdom is always given and received, not earned, not taken by force. You don't seat yourself in the kingdom you are seated by the king. And that's what's beauty about it. It's like you show up to a restaurant and it says, you know, please wait to be seated or please seat yourself. Right? In this case, it's not just, it's not just a servant in the king's court who helps you find a spot at the table. The king himself takes you by the hand and sets you in your place at his table which he has a little card already set out for you. That's how it works. Back in Luke chapter 14, Jesus offers a parable to illustrate this. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. It'll be on the screen. Jesus' words from Luke chapter 14. He says this, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, by the host. And he who invited you both you and the more distinguished person will come and say to you, hey, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Kingdom rule is not taken. The question then is this. And this is the harder question of all the questions I've asked myself this week and I'm asking you this morning. Am I content with the humble seat? Am I content with whatever seat the Lord has assigned to me while I'm here? Or am I always clamoring for a better one? Instead, Jesus is saying because my future rule is certain <laughs> because you're in me and we're one that means your future position is also secure. Therefore you and I can serve humbly seasoned with grace here. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to flex somehow to impress someone else or impress God. You can have a humble confidence, not in self, but in Christ. And so for us, part of living by faith is letting God and His Word reshape our expectations. It's letting God's Word refocus our attention on what's important to us, reprioritize our lives, redirect our steps to reset our lives according to the kingdom so that we can be effective in bringing that kingdom to bear in all the places that God plants us. And our families, amongst our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, and here's our anchor. These words come from the mouth of Jesus Himself. He's the victorious King. He's the one who's bringing the kingdom, and He's the one who's invited us to come and to feast at His table. So let us lay hold of Christ and rejoice together in this promise and. Let's together, even this morning, allow the Holy Spirit to reset us on the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are remarkably patient. That you are actually exceedingly Patient, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, Father? We ask You to forgive us for defaulting so often and falling into the same ruts in our little lowercase K kingdoms. I pray for fresh surrender today, for my heart, for our hearts. To give up the thrones in our lives and to lay hold of your rule and reign. That our relationships with one another here in the body, that our pursuit of excellence and greatness, that our understanding of what makes one powerful or have authority or have position. would all be run through the grid of the kingdom of God and and reset. That we, we might walk in deeper humility, that we might live with more overflowing words and heart and lives of worship because of the grace you've shown us. That we would be Seasoned with grace, joyful servants, and holy content wherever you place us for your glory and for our good. Would you renew us as we come to the communion table to see afresh, to taste the bread? And the cup as a reminder of you, Lord Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.